0: And I'm really excited with what the Lord's given me to share. Just feel it's very cool, very relevant, and just amazing. God's Word is phenomenal. So, Les, inscribed on his hands is the title. I forgot to tell him. I try to remember a title, but it can be difficult. So, many times in Israel's history, if you remember, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, remembering things, God made many commands to help His people remember. As He passed over the firstborn in Egypt, He commanded them to uh, keep the Passover, which was a reminder of how His Spirit passed over. His people that had the blood on the doorposts of the Lamb And that their firstborn was preserved and how he brought them out with a mighty hand. When they crossed over the Jordan in the day of Joshua, God said, have the, the ark of God carried by the priests go first. And when their souls touch the water, you know, they'll, they'll walk on dry ground. They walked into the Jordan and he commanded one of each tribe to carry a large stone and place it in the river where the priests stood. So they'd remember God brought us over. God brought us over, and that's where the priest stood, and it was dry there. And it's a place that would always be covered in water. Um, In Joshua 4, 6, and 7, it says that was to remind future generations of what God had done. In Deuteronomy 27, God told them, Once you cross over, go up on Mount Ebal, place these large stones, plaster them, and write all the words of this law on them. That would have been a big job. He said, engrave upon those stones all the words of this law so that people could see them, that they would remember them. One more example. When the children of Israel had gone up for a prayer meeting with Samuel, the Philistines heard about it. I mean, when you go to a prayer meeting, you're not exactly equipped for war. And so they go to the prayer meeting and the Philistines come in 1 Samuel chapter 7 And as they're praying, they prayed to God, said, God, save us. And God thundered against the Philistines, and they fled, and God gave them a great victory. And so in 1 Samuel 7, 12, it says, Then Samuel took up a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So he puts this stone to remind the people, hey, we came up for prayer. We thought we were dead, but God saved us and he delivered us with a mighty hand. And so I pray that this message isn't Ebenezer in your life. It's a reminder of how much God loves you, and that he hasn't forgotten about you. And forgetting is such a a natural part of the human condition. We have a great capacity for thought and knowledge, but we also forget. It helps us to write things down. And some of us, like, take a note on your hand, right? You take the pen and you write on your hand, or um, and then you forget that you wrote it down. and Yes, we're quite funny. If you've ever tried to learn a new language, you realize that if you stop speaking the language, you become rusty fairly quickly. You begin to forget words. And so we can forget about God, despite the things He's done for us, despite the promises He's made to us. We can, in the, in the I guess, pressure of the day, forget that He has done and said wonderful things. So let's just pray again as we open the word. Lord in heaven, thank you for your word, the power of it, that it has the power to transform us, that they are the words of life. And Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and you'd give us understanding of these things so that we wouldn't forget you. We wouldn't forget the one who has given us life, the one who can drive away all sin, all demonic power, every influence in this world that would turn us from you, Lord, you have power over them. And so we praise you and we ask that you would open our eyes to see you today and that we would walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me and take heed, you peoples from afar, The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God." This chapter begins a section that focuses on the Messiah that God promised to send his people. And the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. God shocked the world by coming. God coming to earth as a man, and then he died for the sins of the world. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And for this reason, the translators of the New King James Version, which you may be reading, They saw fit to capitalize the first person pronouns in the opening verses of this chapter. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, but because of New Testament passages, we know that the the secret identity of who's talking right now. And when it references in verse 3, you are my servant, O Israel, it would be appropriate to say it's personified in Christ because he is truly the one man who was governed by God. And he is the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, when you talk about God's people, he is God's man. He is the man. And uh, Isaiah sent to the Jews. Jesus primarily sent to the lost sheep of Israel. But look at the opening statement here. It's much more broad and far-reaching. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people, from afar. And as someone who's recently traveled to Israel, I can tell you we are just about as far as anyone can be. And so he's talking to us. So he's not saying just distance, but time. From the ends of the earth to the end of, of time. Listen up, I'm speaking to you. And so God speaks to us. And in verse 1, we see that the Messiah's name was spoken even when he was in the womb. Mary became pregnant with the Holy Spirit and Joseph found out that she was pregnant. He wasn't quite sure about the Holy Spirit part. And he was thinking about divorcing her, putting her away. They were betrothed, but not yet married. And he was thinking about, what am I going to do? How do I avoid the scandal? I don't want to to throw Mary under the bus. And an angel spoke to him in Matthew one twenty one. He says, don't be afraid to continue with your, married, your wedding plans. It says, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So whether you say Yeshua Or Iesus, or Jesus, the English way. The name means the same. The Lord is salvation. God is salvation. And doesn't it, isn't it fitting that the mouth of Jesus as a sharp sword? We read in Revelation, you know, that, that he speaks and it's like a sword comes out of his mouth. It cuts through everything. It accomplishes the will of God. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. So this, this, Word that spoke light into the darkness had the same power to heal sickness and deliver people from death, cast out demons. I mean, he, he's speaking to dead people, and they're listening to him and coming alive. Great power. And it says there, um, In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver he has hidden me. So again, notice the me's, they're capitalized. Jesus was prepared by the Father for a particular purpose, even like a soldier would prepare arrows for the battle or a hunter to shoot particular prey. There was this preparation that God did. He said, I have made Jesus for a specific purpose, to save people from their sins. And that's the big difference between the uh, soldier analogy, right? A soldier is making that arrow to shoot his enemies. Jesus did not come to destroy life, but to save people. He wants to save you. He came to save, not to condemn. We're condemned because light came into darkness, and we prefer darkness over light. It says that he was hidden, and most of the Jews did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the one promised by God. He was largely rejected by them. He was hidden from them, but not from God. And verse 4 is interesting. It says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And for reasons unknown to me personally, the translators of the New King James here, they decided to drop the capitals. If, if you read on, you'll see that they, they kept them for a while. Perhaps suggesting this is a parenthetical statement from Isaiah. We know Isaiah did pin this down, but personally, I think it should remain capitalized. Speaking for myself, I can struggle to balance the deity of Christ with his humanity. And I tend, personally, to look more through the divine lens when I see Christ rather than the human one. Just speaking for myself. I can forget that he was a man just like me. In every way a man. In every way tempted. He was tempted to despair, just like I could be tempted to despair. He was tempted to be discouraged. right? That was a very real temptation. Here he is, the light of the world, with the power to save the world, and yet people don't want to be saved. And he's crying over them and saying, hey, I want to gather you together, but you're not willing. And so he had this heart to see people saved, He knows what's awaiting them on the day of judgment, and yet they would not come. And so the devil could put these temptations before him like, ah, see, it's for nothing. You think you're a savior, huh? You think you can make a difference? They're rejecting you. They hate you. If anyone could have felt like their best efforts were being wasted, I think Jesus had that temptation. He didn't give in to that temptation ever like we can he's bringing light into the darkness men are choosing darkness he engaged rational thinking minds people who claim to know and love god he's bringing god's wisdom into that place and they reject him he demonstrates the love of of god in every situation and yet he's hated But Jesus overcame all the temptation of discouragement because he knew his reward would come from his father. And if he could have that confidence, we can too, even when it seems like our best efforts aren't amounting to much. I can't save a single person myself, and yet I can be discouraged. Isaiah 49, 5 through 6, he knew it was going to happen. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends Of the earth. Jesus came to this world to bring God's people back to him, to bring Jacob back to God, to gather Israel. The Jews in Christ's day, Jesus said, You study the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life. They are which that speak of me. The law was incapable of bringing life, it brought the knowledge of sin. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who brings life. They didn't recognize him. He was hidden from their eyes. Jesus came to free people from bondage of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin over a life, and to bring salvation by grace through faith if we'll repent and trust in him. So Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. His disciples have continued to spread the good news. And the Bible tells us a day is coming in the future where God is going to bring believing jews to himself that the nation of israel will be saved as they recognize hey the the we thought that this christ this he's actually an antichrist we thought he was the messiah but he's not jesus is the messiah and we're going to trust in him so god's future plans they include the nation as they come to christ however it included more than just israel Because he says, it's a small thing, really, to bring my own people back to me, but I want to give you as a light to the Gentiles. I want to bring people outside of the fold of God into my fold, to graft them in. And so the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jews caused his light to shine to the Gentiles, and God will use the light shining in the Gentiles to bring Jews to faith. It's pretty amazing how God works. Isaiah was not a light to the Gentiles. We know in the New Testament, Jesus is the light, right? The law of Moses required um, when you gave birth to a son to bring him into the temple on the eighth day to be presented before the Lord with sacrifice and to be circumcised. In Luke's gospel, we read of a devout man named Simeon who was led by the Spirit into the temple, if you want to turn to it, in Luke 2, 28. He's led by the Spirit to go into the temple, and he sees Jesus being presented. And there's this really wonderful scene here in Luke 2:28. <clears throat> it says, "...he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, "'Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, "'according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation.'" which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He had seen his salvation. He held him in his arms and blessed him, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. We're all born into darkness. We're all born dead in sins. And Jesus has come to bring a light and salvation to all who repent and trust in him. This passage in Isaiah is also quoted in Acts 13, if you want to turn there, Acts 13, 46. Paul and Barnabas had been speaking to the Jews concerning Christ, and they refused the gospel. And it says in Acts 13, 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So a Gentile, uh, very generally, it just means a non-Jew. So... Um, God's salvation is for everyone. It doesn't matter your ethnicity or your family tree. If you breathe breath on this earth as a human being, God loves you and wants to see you saved. The Jewish nation, they have a, a unique place in God's plan, but all people are equally special and loved by God. God desires that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. He has plenty of room you remember that parable where uh, the master's planning this feast and he goes to to bring in the people who who accepted his invitation at the beginning and they all made these lame excuses and he gets pretty mad. He's like, hey, uh, the feast is prepared. It's ready. And the people are making light of it and, you know, the servants that he sent to give the message, they're killing them and stuff. So he becomes a bit frustrated. Uh understandably so. And he says, you know what? Just get anybody in here, the blind, the lame, whoever you can find, bring them in. We're having a party. We are going to celebrate. And they go out. We've done as you said, and there's still room. There's still room. There's still room in heaven. It's never full. Plenty of room for those who come to Christ. He won't cast out anyone who comes to him in faith. Isaiah forty nine seven. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. God is a Redeemer jesus is a savior he was he was despised by the people he came to save jesus knows what it means to be despised and abhorred and hated to be rejected you think of jesus with the love he had for people and yet there he is he's been beaten and scourged and he's wearing that crown of thorns that's been pressed into his scalp pontius pilate says behold the man and the people are stirred up by the chief priests and they say, crucify him, crucifying. They're shouting. They're almost starting a mob. I mean, this mob is starting a riot. And Pilate asks incredulously, shall I crucify your king? And what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. Full rejection of the son of God who came to them. This king of the Jews, this Jesus, he will return in power. Before him, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We read that in Philippians chapter 2. And before Jesus Christ, the knees of many Jews and Gentiles are bowed today in faith. God has the allegiance and worship and praise of many people in this room. And in serving him and loving him, we glorify him in serving others. It says that kings will rise, princes will worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. It feels good to be chosen. I remember playing baseball, I was 12 years old, and one of the biggest honors possible was being selected by your peers for the all-star team. Now the all-star team, I don't know if we had six teams or eight teams or something, I think it was six out of all the teams, they would choose thirteen players to represent the club in a competition that if you kept winning, you could actually go to the little League World Series and that was like a really big honor It was kind of the dream of every kid who played baseball was to 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 represent your team or your your club and to go on to uh i forget where it is anymore but uh anyway, it was cool, so I remember really wondering like Lord am I gonna be on that team or not and I saw my name on the list and I was like right on. I was really excited. I also remember when I was in year ten and I was trying out for our high school team and I did a tryout and I looked at the list and my name was not on the list and I was shocked because I had I thought I because I had played on the school team the year before and I thought hey you know I have the experience and and I looked and, and I was cut the first day. And there were still like three pages of names left or two pages. And I'm scanning and scanning. And it's just not there. And I'm like, oh, well. Now, those are two very different days in my life. I felt very differently about baseball on one of those days than the other day. It affected my sense of purpose and belonging. It, it changed my outlook. And because I wasn't chosen on the team, I never went out for the team again. The, the last... the It was not until I came to Australia that I actually played again. It was Paul who said, hey, Ben, you want to be on my team? I'm like, hey, I'll try. See, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been chosen by God. You have been adopted as a son into his family. You've been made an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Out of all the people in the world, God chose you now don't let the fact that other people are also chosen lessen the wonder and amazement of being chosen when I looked at that list and I saw my name there I didn't say oh man he got picked he got picked I was excited to play with these guys because they were the best they were as legendary as you could be when you're 12 years old and it was like I get to play on that guy's team I always have to play against him but now we're teammates and it was exciting. And we went on to win a few tournaments. But I was chosen on their team. And we get to be on Jesus' team. He's chosen us. We get to walk with Him. We get to be used by Him. Don't let how special that is to be lost on you. We've been been chosen to have a necessary part in His body. You're part of his body if you're in Christ. And you form an important role to strengthen and encourage others to come to Christ. And for the first time, you belong someplace forever. You belong in the body of Christ, and he has a place for you for eternity where you belong. You won't be left out. You're in because you're part of him. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and those from the land of Sinim. Jesus spent a great deal of his life in prayer. God would hear him and help him. And as part of his body, God hears and helps us. He preserves us. And through Christ's blood being shed, the Bible says he established a new covenant. So the old covenant was one of law, written upon tablets of stone. This new law would be God's laws written upon the hearts and minds of his people. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did not do away with the law. He established a new covenant of grace through faith in him. Because righteousness always comes um, through faith apart from the law. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It's written in John 1 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Grace and truth came through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, he explains how the new covenant, it affects the inward parts of a person. How it's better than the old law, it's external, written on the tablets of stone. Sure, it was written by the finger of God. It's true, it's righteous, but God wants to write his laws upon the tablets of our heart. And we read that in Hebrews 8 verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Midway through verse 9, we see the promise of provision and protection, guidance by the good shepherd, Jesus. Even if we feel all alone and far from help, God will lead us every step. It says, they shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water he will guide them. As we walk along this road, this pilgrimage on earth, with Jesus, we have provision. Even on all the desolate heights, there's pasture prepared for the sheep of his flock. Now, this isn't saying that we're never going to experience physical hunger or thirst. We do. That's, that's natural and actually good for us so that we tend to our bodies. But we can know that all of our spiritual needs, our physical needs, they are known and they will be met by God. Check out this quote from Alan Redpath. He says, there's no exception in that great but little word, all. There is nothing in life. No obstacle, no loneliness, no trial, no sorrow which may not be a way into God's richest blessing. There is no situation of entanglement, nothing that you could possibly conceive, but this can be part of God's way to make his mountain a way of deliverance. Now, if you're trying to get from point A to point B and there's a mountain in your way and there's no clear path on it, you wouldn't see that as a way through. It would just be an obstacle to you, right? It's like, this is in my way. Like, I want this mountain moved out of my way. But he's saying, no, my, my way is in the mountain. I'll make in the mountain a way. It's wonderful to know that the towering obstacles, the impossibilities that loom before us, it can be a way to better know God. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. The God who has mercy on you will guide you and he'll lead you by those springs of living water. Those rugged mountains may seem impossible for you to cross, but God will make a road for you. He will make a road through. He brought the Israelites safely through the the depths of the Red Sea, and he'll guide you through the valley of the shadow of death without fear of evil or pain. Without death, fear of death. Many times in Scripture we have examples of barren women who gave birth to sons, even the Virgin Mary. Some of these, it was, it was fun to think about how many there were. You have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, the wife of Manoah, Samson's mom, the Shunammite, woman in Elisha's day, Elizabeth, and the Virgin Mary. So our God does the impossible. He takes something that's barren, unable to bear fruit, and He makes it fruitful, and very fruitful. God would judge his people for their sin, but he would restore them. And maybe you feel like God has left you desolate. You know, on those desolate heights, you're all alone. Maybe you you feel cursed by your sin, and there's a massive load of, of guilt that you don't feel you could ever remove. Like, well, I've just got to live with this for the rest of my life. There's no, there's no deliverance for me here. I mean, i come to Christ, and yet I'm still burdened. I'm still finding things difficult. Maybe you've struggled for so long that you've lost hope you will ever experience victory. Like, well, there's no victory for me. There's no hope that I can be changed. You're numb from the struggle. Perhaps you've been beaten up so long you don't even resist it anymore. And if truth be told, you don't believe that God can or will save you from your dilemma or your problem. Could you please turn to Isaiah 66 verse 9? This is really a key thought. Isaiah 66, verse 9. God said, Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Could it be... That this season of struggle is as a woman pained during labor because God wants you to repent and be born again. Could it be this season, which may be a long season, of dryness or depression or addiction, they're the final labor pains to push you into new life with Jesus Christ and increased fruitfulness in ministry? Would God bring you through pain and agony with nothing to show for it? No! He's saying, if I am causing labor pains, point very intense, racking your entire body, um, I've never experienced them personally, but I've seen them experienced, I've heard them experienced. God is the one who brings to the birth; He will cause delivery. He will deliver you. So I ask, won't you trust Him? Won't you believe Him? Won't you, believe, won't you obey Him in a season of pain and throw yourself on His mercy that are new every morning? Sometimes we try to do for ourselves what only God can do for us. If you could go to Isaiah 49, 13, we'll continue. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people. And will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. So after this promise of, Hey, you're on the desolate heights, I'm gonna feed you. If the sun's boiling hot, I'm gonna protect you, I'm gonna preserve you, I'm here to give you life, right? There's this really encouraging thing. And he's like erupting in praise. Well, praise the Lord, sing, be joyful, receive this, break out in singing, O mountains. God's comforted his people. He's going to have mercy on the afflicted. If you're afflicted, he has mercy for you. So he's like, yeah, awesome. Praise the Lord. We have to trust God. We have to choose if we're going to trust ourselves or rely upon him. To those who are born again through faith, we have the promise of the fullness of joy, peace that passes understanding, even in the midst of pain and tragedy. You have Paul and Silas, right? They they deliver a girl from a, a demon who is a, a fortune teller. They're beaten. They're thrown in the stocks in the middle of the prison in the middle of the night. And what are they doing? In the darkness, they're singing to the Lord. They're praising God. And it says and all the prisoners heard them. Then God delivered them with a the mighty hand, right? The place earthquake and their shackles fall off. The doors swing open and and salvation comes. So it's like, those were some birth pangs that maybe they didn't realize it was leading to that philippian jailer being saved and all his house. And if if I could if that was only the price to pay, right, to get beat up and put in prison, knowing that you were going to be delivered and a whole household was going to come to Jesus Christ, we'd probably a lot of us sign up for that because we could see the fruit that would come from it. When Jesus went to the cross, he did so knowing for the joy that was before him because he knew the salvation that would be wrought to the ends of the earth forever from his sacrifice. But we get in the middle of a painful time and we're focused so much on our pain that we don't believe God could bring anything good out of it. That there's salvation for anybody. But if God would bring salvation for someone else through your pain, would you sign up for that? There is comfort and joy for you in Jesus Christ. There is mercy that God, for those who God graciously afflicts so that they may return to Him and be revived. Now, did the people in this passage agree with God? Look at verse 14. But Zion said, so he's like, seen guys, praise the Lord. He's gonna, He's gonna comfort you. He's got mercy for you. And they go, no, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. They weren't able to praise God. And you know, believer, we've been there. We're having a hard time, and we just can't bring ourselves to praise God. We still feel forgotten. We feel forsaken. They could only see their predicament. They could only see the Babylonians coming. They could only see this these years of of uh, oppression, the famine, the starvation, the pain. That's that's all they could see, even with the promises of God. And I think we're, we can be in that same place. One of the oldest idioms recorded in English uh, has been in constant use since the 12th century. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I learned that there's a new idiom. It says Chuck Norris can lead a horse to water and make it drink. I had not heard that one before. (laughs) This passage says, if you are afflicted, there is mercy, joy, and comfort for you. It's that simple. In Jesus Christ. That is there for you. Wouldn't you agree there's a big difference between stomach cramps and giving birth to a child? Big difference. Now, stomach cramps can be pretty intense. They can last a while. I, I doubt you remember the last day you had stomach cramps. Maybe it's been really recent, or today, so you, you haven't really, like you're, you're right in the thick of it, right? But I can tell you this, those who have actually given birth to a healthy child, they'll know the date their labor pains ended. They will always remember that date because it's the day their child was born. They won't forget that day. They don't go, oh, that was my labor day. They go, no, this is the birthday. We're looking at the one side of it, right? But we can be so focused on the pain of the trial and the duration of these contractions that we, you know, and almost... Well, I can go different directions, but um, stomach pain will never produce a baby, no matter how prolonged it is. It can't do that, right? God brings to the birth. Those who are in the world, those who are without Christ, they experience pain. They experience being forsaken and alone. And it's like stomach pains without coming to the birth. But in Christ, he allows us to endure pain. And he strengthens us and comforts us in the midst of pain. And we can know that in the end, it will produce new life. It will produce a closer walk with him. That mountain that seems impassable, that's going to be the very path God uses for us to know him better. It's like, only God can do that. What wisdom. So in your current struggle, will you be as Israel, focusing on your pain... Or will you praise God with joy, taking comfort in his mercies that are new every morning and that he is going to bring something precious out of this pain? He has something precious for you. You don't know what it is. You didn't know. You maybe knew a little bit about that baby, uh, looking at the sonogram and the images, and you could see kind of a one-dimensional picture and go, oh, well, this is whoever But there's a big difference when that baby comes into the world and it has a name and a face and you can hold it in your hands. And that's what God wants to produce in your life new life, growth. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. So he asks a rhetorical question of his hearers. The answer may surprise you. One may think a woman who's gone through all that, she's carried a child for nine months, she's given birth to that child, and she has a nursing infant she couldn't possibly forget about that infant. She couldn't possibly not have compassion on that child. But the answer is, well, yeah, surely they will forget. It's the cry of the baby that wakes her up. Oh, no, it's time for feeding. I totally forgot. Right? It may not be for a long time, but you could be so desperate for sleep that you're not having very much compassion on that little crying child. And you're like, ugh, like, all right. It was it was fun and games for a while, but this is getting old. I am tired. I need some relief, Right? So we, we forget. Oh, I, I was in a conversation and I forgot that my, my son was wandering around the park and I don't know where he is and I'm freaking out. We forget. The most compassionate mother forgets and the most uh, compassionate father stops being compassionate at a point, right? We are made of flesh. We, there's an end to my love. Let me tell you. God says, surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. God would provide for his people. He would preserve them. He would save them. And look at what he says. He says, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Speaking of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, he's like, I know where my presence is. I know where my people are. And I've inscribed you on my hands. We have a high priest and a king, Jesus, who suffered for our sins. He died for our sakes. And for, in a demonstration of love, He was crucified. Nails went through His feet and His hands. The blood of Jesus flowed from those hands. The Bible says they looked upon God, whom they pierced. And those marks in Christ's hands, they're not, uh, shameful reminders. But they're a badge of honor at the price he was willing to pay for you and me, a permanent mark. Remember, after he rose from the dead, Thomas said, unless I put my fingers into his, his, the nail prints in his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. And when Jesus rose from the dead, even in his glorified body, he had these marks. He had inscribed his people on his hands. You know that he died on the cross for you. You've received that as a Christian. But he, it's not like he needs a reminder, but it's such a beautiful picture of his love for you. He hasn't just inscribed your name on his hands. You are more than a name. He's inscribed you on the palms of his hands. You have been inscribed there. You have been chosen. What a privilege. He has not forgotten. He has not forsaken you. He's inscribed you on the palms of his hands. Please turn to Psalm 22. We'll just consider a little bit of a passage in closing which describes Christ suffering on the cross to redeem sinners. And he was willing to endure agony on the cross so we could be born again and adopted into his family. And if such Fruitfulness should come from the suffering of one man who came into the world. We can know the suffering and affliction God allows in our lives. It can work for us. It can work for the benefit of others. All for the glory of God. Psalm 22, verse 14. And this is a description of the crucifixion where it's written... With the Messiah speaking, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me, O my strength. Hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him all you offspring of Israel. You see this intense pain, intense suffering, and what's the response at the end? God's heard me. Praise Him. I'm going to declare His name among my brethren. Jesus is the first of many brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And that's what we should do. We should praise the Lord. We should rejoice and glorify Him, fear Him, all you offspring of Israel, we get to be God's offspring. We have been born again. We have been made new. And the promises of God are for us to receive and to walk in. So let's praise the Lord. He is our strength and our song. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder you've given us that we are not forsaken, we are not forgotten, and that we our right to praise you, to glorify you, even in the midst of pain, knowing and believing that you will bring something precious through it. Lord, if those obstacles have been overwhelming us, uh, where there's so many impossibilities and we're, we're just struck by our own fruitlessness, Lord, through this pain, I know that you will bring much fruit, that you will not cause pain and not cause to be brought to birth. So, Lord, I pray that we would endure trusting in you. We would look to you and seek you and that you would put praises on our lips. Lord, fill our hearts with a new song unto you that we might magnify your holy name. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for inscribing us upon the palms of your hands that you haven't forgotten us. You won't forget to show compassion to us. You know our frame that we are dust. Thank you for bringing us into your family, for adopting us as your children for loving us with an everlasting love. Fill us with your praise, Lord, for you are worthy and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.